Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Hey there, podcast listeners. Jonathan here. Today is the second of a two-part conversation with Dr. Lisa Damore, author of the 2019 book, Under Pressure. In today's episode, we talk about rape culture, the problem with the word consent, and how society's criticisms of the way girls speak is really just another way of criticizing girls. Now, if you haven't heard part one, please check it out. Lisa and I talk about the difference between stress, anxiety, and trauma, what good and bad pressure looks like, and how schools, parents, and providers can think about pressure. Now, you don't have to listen to part one to enjoy today's episode, but we do talk about some of these foundational concepts that, if you're not familiar with, sort of creep in today's conversation. Lisa is a psychologist, author, teacher, speaker, and consultant. She writes the monthly adolescence column for the Well Family section of the New York Times and is a regular contributor at CBS News. She serves as a senior advisor to the Schubert Center for Child Studies at Case Western Reserve University and is also the executive director of Laurel School's Center for Research on Girls. Before we get to the interview, I want to give a big shout out to Fatima Lee, a BSW student at Douglas College in British Columbia, Canada, for transcribing episode 122, and Alyssa Tobin, online MSW student at Widener University, who lives in Salem, Oregon, for transcribing episode 123, which is this episode. That's right. She transcribed the episode before it even came out. Podcast transcripts are invaluable for lots of reasons. And I couldn't do it without listeners like Fatima and Alyssa, who volunteered their time and energy to donate these transcriptions. If you want to donate a transcript, please send me an email at jonathan.b.singer at gmail.com, and I will be happy to give you a shout-out in a future episode. And now, without further ado, on to episode 123 of the Social Work Podcast, Under Pressure, Part 2, an interview with Lisa Damore. Lisa, thank you so much for being here again on the Social Work Podcast to talk to us this time about your book, Under Pressure. Thank you so much for having me. I love being on with you. Now, there are some things that that you talk about in the book that I think are really important in terms of what's going on culturally. You talk about rape culture. Mm. You have this great thing in your book and that you've talked about. I know in the New York Times, you, you have this great article talking about this idea of consent and how it doesn't cut it. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. Sure, sure. Um, you know, it's interesting you say rape culture, and I agree with you that there is such a thing. That's, and I don't know why I don't. I never use that term in the book. It's funny. I think I talk a lot about the phenomenon without using that term. And I, I'm just reflecting now. I don't know why I didn't, but I, I'm just mindful that I didn't. Um, yes, no, and you're right. That yeah. was my term that, yeah. I, that I put. So, yeah. Yeah, no, and I and – I, I have no problem with the term. I'm just sort of thinking, like, how come that didn't come up in that way? But, um, you know, I think what we have to own as adults, and this is very uncomfortable for us, is that with the best intentions, we 
often talk with young people in a way that continues to promote a framework that we should be challenging. And what I mean is the framework that exists in the culture is that when it comes to gendered sexuality, um, the guys play offense and the girls play defense. And this is a really problematic framework that has been around for a long, long time. And then well-meaning adults do all sorts of things to actually keep it going. So, um, you know, one of the things I talk about a little bit in the book and I've written about for the Times is, you know, we make rules like don't send nude pictures, right, using your text, you know, by, by cell phone. And now if you actually look at this phenomenon, it's often the girls, it's overwhelmingly the girls who are doing the sending, and it's overwhelmingly the girls doing the sending in response to requests, but much more often like flat out harassment from boys um, to do so. And so I, I'm on a tear about the fact that that's fine. We can have rules saying don't send. You also have to rule saying don't ask. Right. Right. And, and the fact that we have not, we've been all over the rule about don't send and I have yet to hear anybody but me propose that like, yeah, that's fine, but you have to have a don't ask to me speaks to that. You know, that we, we sort of assume the boys will ask like that's, you know, we're not going to try to regulate that. We're leaving it to the girls to, you know, to say no. Um, and then similarly, though I have no conceptual problem with the idea of, you know, focusing on consent, right? That, you know, if you're, if there's going to be a sexual interaction, it should definitely be consensual. Um, I have discovered, and I'm kind of to my own surprise, that I, I really think it's the wrong word to use with kids and teenagers when we're talking about their romantic lives because it sets such a low bar, right? It sets this ridiculously low bar. And, and so often, you know, sort of sex ed is focused on this idea of consent, like you must have consent to proceed. Okay, so how does this actually play often in real life? And, and I, you know, I quote some stuff on this in, in the piece I wrote for the Times. You know, what it means is, guys will badger girls until they say yes, right? And then, I mean, they got consent, right? And so I just feel like, well, this is completely wrong, right? <laughs> like, so, <laughs> so um, you know, and I think that what we got stuck in is a legal term, right? And we're using a legal term as a stand-in for, for a conversation that should be much more nuanced and humane than that. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know that this is exactly the right term, but one place I suggest we start, start is, why don't you go for enthusiastic agreement, right? We're talking about your love life here. Giving in should not be adequate, right? Or, okay, fine, should not cut it. Um, you know, that's fine. You can have a consent to a root canal, right? That's, I have no problem with people consenting to root canals, <laughs> right? But, you know, in your romantic life, you know, it just doesn't even begin to make sense. And so you know, I really try to um, sort of chip away in that chapter about girls among boys and all of these things that really well-meaning adults do who are on the right side of this and trying to make it better. And then just because we are so embedded in the culture, we turn around and make rules or give advice that really just reinforces this idea that the boys will you know, have their foot on the gas and the girls must put their foot on the brakes and this is how it's gonna unfold. Mm. I appreciate you talking through that. I, you know, I think that for me, this idea of stress and anxiety and trauma is really wrapped up in what I think of as rape culture on a very daily basis in high school. Uh, 
and and I think it's an incredible source of stress, yeah. obviously, you know, for the objects of the harassment, which traditionally girls and, and sexual and gender minority youth. And, um, yeah. and and this doesn't need to be said, but, you know, for these kids, it, it, it obviously becomes more than stress. It can rise to, you know, what we were talking about earlier about anxiety and, of course, it can be traumatizing. Um, and, and I use the term rape culture because culture affects everyone, right? Yeah. Victims and perpetrators. And and in the USA, the perpetrators of gender-based violence are overwhelmingly boys and men. Um, yeah. So, you know, if I think about boys, right, there's constant pressure from from peers and from media and and adults to to be aggressive and to 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 touch and to take and and as you said to play offense yeah um and and there's this pressure on how they should act on a daily basis that is wrong um and so this is I guess this is a really long way of saying that I I really love uh, the phrase that you suggested instead of the legal term consent, and actually such a long way of saying it that I, I can't remember. Um, what was the phrase that you suggested? I think it's enthusiastic agreement, right? That you should really, like this should be the expectation. But you're also bringing up something that I have to say, I was I was a little embarrassed to discover how much I had missed the boat on this, um, which is that, the day-to-day in middle and high schools is, um, is a very harassment-oriented place. Um, and, and I talk about this in, um, in the beginning of the chapter about Girls Among Boys, where I was meeting with a bunch of girls, and it was right after the whole um, Harvey Weinstein thing had broken. And I feel so like naive in retrospect, but I said, you know, do you want to talk about the Me Too stuff? And I was truly thinking, so that when you are in the workplace and you encounter this harassment, like (laughs) I will have equipped you. And luckily the girls just, you know, educated me really quickly about how much of this was already part of their day to day. And this happened to be in an all girls school environment. So they were talking about just what, you know, for them, luckily, I guess, you know, limited to their out of school interactions. Um, and I, I was floored, you know, and the things they were describing and the things I've heard since, you know, of where, you know, if there's a group picture, um, that a bunch of teenagers take with each other, the boys feel either they have the right to, or obliged to just put their hands on girls' butts. Right. And like, if a girl pushes back, um, you know, she can really be ostracized for that. And, and I just, I feel like I am only beginning to wrap my head around, the power imbalance among teenagers when it comes to gender. And I truly, and I'm like, I haven't said these words out loud, but I I think we're going to have to reckon with the fact that the power imbalance is much more off balance among among teenagers than it is among adults. Mm. And that we have not really reckoned with that. Harassing boys have a lot of social cachet. Yeah, they do. And a lot of power in school dynamics. And I, I just, I don't even think we've really looked at that straight on. And I don't even know that I do it 
I, I will not in any way say that I did it fully at all and under pressure. I think it's something I'm still coming to terms with and don't want to see. Yes. Well, and I think the, you know, I think the Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too uh, has, has, has shined a light on um, culture change. And shifting things down the line means that we absolutely have to think about this for adolescents yeah. and, of course, thinking about it before kids become adolescents. Um, and, and one of the things that you do mention in the book, it's actually in your chapter on girls in the culture, you have this great section on language. Um, when I read it, I th it sort of seemed like this kind of academic throwdown um, <laughs> between Naomi Wolf yeah. and Deborah Cameron yeah. um, about criticizing the way girls speak. And you quote Cameron, uh, who said, um, people may claim that their judgments are purely about the speech, but really their judgments of the speaker. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about criticizing the way girls speak. And then you describe this verbal toolkit. But could you walk us through what you were saying in this section with this this idea of how we criticize the way girls speak? Yeah. OK, so this gets like this is both for me sort of like some of the most intellectually exciting stuff. It's also the like the naughtiest. Right. I mean, like not not naughty, like inappropriate, but like naughty, like K-N-O-T-T-Y. I mean, like this stuff is really complicated, but I love it. OK, so. um. Again, another well-meaning thing that adults do with girls is give them instructions on how they're supposed to speak, right? And we say, you know, you shouldn't say I'm sorry so much and you shouldn't hedge so much, you know, hedging being like, would you mind? Or, I'm, you know, would it be okay if, or I'm not sure this is the right answer, you know, those kinds of um, linguistic gestures that soften what comes next. Um, and we, and by we, I often mean like, in, you know, feminists, you know, in, in a really well-meaning effort to try to empower girls have suggested that, and Naomi Wolf, you know, is the one who I, I particularly cite in this, in this chapter, you know, go on record and say, hey, you know, you're undermining your own power. Mm -hmm. You know, the, these, these feminine ways of speaking, you know, are contributing to your own disempowerment and you need to speak boldly and you need to be strong and you need to speak, you know, and, and basically the message is like more like men. Right. You know, if you speak more like men, you'll have more of their power. OK, so this is one of those assumptions that kind of travel travels around. Right. And people have sort of not questioned it all that much unless you happen to be an academic linguist. Right. <laughs> and, and so the only reason I, I have to give credit here. So one of my dearest friends for years and years is a woman named Anne Curzan, who is an academic linguist. And so um, and we've co-authored teaching books together. And so this is the only reason I have any real awareness of the amazing things happening on the academic linguistic side. But so what I um, play kind of articulate in, in, in a section of this of the book is this rebuttal from Deborah Cameron, who is an academic linguist. She's at Oxford. No one's heard of her unless you happen to be, you know, on the academic side. She's not someone who's got a large, well, I mean, people have heard of her, but she doesn't have like a large linguistic following in the popular culture. She doesn't have um, like a 10 million view TED talk. No. Exactly. And, and she's also not known like Naomi Wolf is known, you know, but so, so Deborah Cameron retorts to a piece that Naomi Wolf right, wrote saying, you know, stop giving away your power with your, you know, the way you speak. And she basically is like, look, Naomi, first of all, men and women, girls and boys don't speak that differently. You know, we look at the data, they're saying all the same things. Um, 
And so this idea that girls are doing this and guys are not, that actually doesn't hold up to the light of day. The other is, this is an old game. You go after a disempowered group by going after how they speak, right? And this, you know, th th this is how we have consistently done it with people who, you know, minority cultures, um, African-American dialect, you know, that there, it is an old game to say, you know, listen to the way they speak, the way they speak is wrong, okay. You know, I could go on on a rant about this, but if you actually look at a lot of, you know, African American dialect, you know, the declension of the of the verbs is a lot more regular than the declension of verbs in standard English, right? So, like, you know, from a from a linguistic standpoint, like, there's not a wrong here, right? This is no, this is already a disempowered group, and then going after how they speak becomes just a new stick to beat them with, um, and so you know, what Deborah Cameron retorts to Naomi is like, look, if you want to really support girls, go after the structures that go after girls for how they speak, right? Um, don't go after the girls themselves. Okay, so that's one way in which we have to revisit it. The other thing that we do have to reckon with is even if guys are bolder in their speech, more direct, you know, less cautious, less... Um, concerned about the feelings of the person on the other side, they're allowed to get away with it in our culture in a way that girls are not. And so I'm not saying we shouldn't tell girls to be bold in their speech, but we shouldn't do it with the promise that this is going to work for you the way it works for guys, because in our culture, it doesn't. So they should need to go in clear-eyed about the choices they're making. The other thing is, why should guys be allowed to do that? Um, and, and I don't get into this in the book, but it was really compelling to me as I was trying to sort through this argument. One of my friends is a federal prosecutor, and he is in charge of a large number of younger lawyers who um, come to him for questions all day long. And we were discussing this, and he said, you know, women come in my office, the female lawyers come in and say, do you have a minute? I have a question. He said, the guys walk in, and they just start talking. And he said... I'm embarrassed to realize I probably answer more of those questions because I will say to the women, actually, no, I'm in the middle of something. He's like, but why are the guys coming in and just starting talking? Mm. Right? Like, that shouldn't be okay. So, you know, if once you pull this thread, a lot unravels. Here's where I land. Everybody and girls needs a linguistic toolkit, you know, a verbal toolkit. We need a repertoire that we can use that covers a wide range of contexts, right? Because if there's anything that is context-driven, it's human communication, right? So, so what I say is like, look, yes, every girl should have a hammer in her toolbox, right? You know, if she's in a bar and somebody touches her, she should be prepared, if she feels safe, to really give it to that person with both barrels, right? That, sh that should be in her toolbox. Everyone also probably needs a tweezer right? You know, mm. do you have a moment? You know, I, I'm so sorry to bother you, but I do have this pressing need, you know, that that is actually how we are civil um, as human, you know, as humans having to share space and, and time. Um, and the idea I think that we want to get away from is that this is simple and that you can give a one size fits all answer to things like how to communicate, which is so subtle and complicated. And I also think we wanna be really, really cautious. There is a, a real logical fallacy to the idea of men do this, it works for them. If women do this, it will work for them the way it works for the men. Well, thank you for unpacking the academic linguistic side of things. Uh, it isn't 
something that I'm really familiar with. Um, <laughs> and, you know, for me, this conversation about criticizing how girls talk really gets to the heart of how we use language to, to reinforce the gender binary. Uh-huh. Right. And, and, and it highlights the social construction of what is normal. I, I heard a talk by a trans woman who said that the people that she was around reacted totally differently to her when she used phrases or used a tone of voice as a woman um, that she had used when she lived as a man. And as a man, she could point out a mistake and people would thank her, or at least do what she said. But when she did the same thing as a woman, people would get offended or argue with her. And so I think this is a really important point about as a provider, as a clinician, what are the ways in which we are reinforcing these linguistic gender stereotypes and why are we doing it? Because I think your point is really important. Like, we don't want to take away the things that that make interactions respectful and polite and connecting. And we also don't want to say that you have to speak totally differently if you want to have respect in this culture, because that's a cultural construction. Right. And that feels like we would never want to you know, kind of blame the victim, you know, like, I, I, I don't know, you know, but we want to be careful of that. I do think we can say things like to, you know, you know, young women, you, if you want to speak boldly, do it, be ready for some blowback. Like, no, like you know that blowback's coming and you may want that blowback and you may be prepared to deal with that blowback and you may be wanting to have that fight that day. And that is a worthy fight to have. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think that, that that's what we owe young people. What I worry right now is that the advice seems to suggest that this is going to work. Right. And, and that's not how it goes. But here's something I've thought about a lot, and I, I wonder if there's a way to study it. Um, I wonder if you look at, you know, the CEOs, the really successful, you know, in business environments, which are very male. You know, if you really look at people who by some who knows what measure have been the most successful, do they in fact have the broadest repertoires, right? I mean, are we looking at men mm. who um, – who really know how to say, excuse me, that's my seat mm-hmm. when they need to, and who also have it well within their capacity to say, I am so sorry. I think there may have been a mix up right. on <laughs> this. I, I think you might be sitting in A and I think I should be, you know, like, like, yep. do they have, like, are these the people who really actually end up navigating most successfully, hmm. regardless of gender, you know, and, and I don't know if there's a way to really look at that, but I, I've wondered that a lot. Sounds like it's time to set up coffee with your academic linguist friend. And... I know. Get them going on that. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, well, you know, Lisa, I could I could talk to you all day. Not Ditto. That, not, that, not that you have time for that. Not that the folks listening to this episode have all day. But certainly if, if they want to learn more, they should get your book under pressure. I have one last question. Mm-hmm. Has your work... On under pressure, the the research that you've done, the the things that you've been thinking about it, has it changed any of the advice you gave in your previous book, Untangled, which was about sort of raising teenage girls? Um, I honestly don't think it has. 
um, which I'm sort of surprised to say and relieved, I guess, to say, you know, that there's nothing that, you know, looking at Untangled that I'm thinking, oh, I wish I'd take, I could take that one back. Um, to my surprise, they take up very different content, um, which I was, I'm sort of surprised given that they have come out three years apart um, and they're both on Teenage Girls. But I feel like in Untangled, it's so much an, un an unpacking of the inner world of girls, you know, just like of development, you know, just yeah. the normal course of development and um, what I want parents to know about this. And I feel like Under Pressure is much more about the world surrounding girls, you know, mm -hmm. their, their families or schools, things like that. Um, I, I would say probably the one thing where I feel like my thinking did develop is I feel a little more optimistic in Under Pressure than I did in Untangled around helping young people deal with conflict. You know, I mean, the seventh grade is just such a tough time. And I think in Untangled, I sort of felt like, I don't know what to tell you, you know, like this is just going to be a rough year. Um, and in Under Pressure, I do, you know, kind of, I've learned more about conflict and helping young people with conflict. That said, <laughs> I still am finding, you know, there's just this juncture at seventh and a little bit eighth where even though kids get it and they know they're being turkeys and they know they shouldn't, they're still doing it at the same <laughs> rates. And right now, you know, the thing is just killing me. You know, eighth graders who cannot stop themselves from posting on Instagram anytime they're with other kids in social settings, right? Mm. And, you know, they just are tortured to see this um, when they themselves look at Instagram and they see all the things they weren't invited to. And yet when they're finally there with their friends, they cannot stop themselves from, you know, needing to, you know, telegraph that to the entire world, uh, broadcast that out. And and so I I do, I, I think I've, I've made some headway in understanding conflict and how to talk with kids about conflict, but I don't want to make any big promises that like, you know, under pressure now solves, you know, cures seventh and eighth grade like, <laughs> man if you could do that that would be overselling well and based on what you said in the very beginning of our conversation like we shouldn't be curing seventh and eighth grade because because those are experiences not all of them but some of those experiences that's you know the, for, for a lot of kids that's the first time that they get into weight training right yep. you know that they're doing the heavy lifting and and I do think that there is a, uh, some people go to one extreme, uh, both parents and clinicians, where they say, we're going to make this okay for you. Yeah. And then the other extreme is, I'm basically going to ignore you for right. the next two years because it sucks and that's just the way it has to be no matter what. And what I hear you saying is there's a middle ground and we have to understand when pressure is helpful and when we recognize it as being problematic. Yep, exactly. And even when it's problematic, there are things we can do to help. It's like the best end to a podcast episode ever. <laughs> <I think>. <laughs> <laughs> to those of you listening, we did not script that. That was just <laughs> spontaneous. <laughs> All right. Um, well, Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us again, this time about your book, Under Pressure. Thank you so much. It's, it's a total delight to talk with you. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. 
We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast. Thank you.